Good evening. So good to be together tonight. And uh, I, can we just thank Gabriel and the team for all the work of putting this together and <clears throat> their faith and, but, and their heart, their heart that this gathering would truly be about exalting Jesus and glorifying him. This is incredible. Just look around for a moment. Look at the person next to you. Look around this field and think about all the redemptions that are occurring tonight. Unbelievable that a third of you, this was represented a place of difficulty and brokenness and pain, and tonight it's being transformed into a place of worship. This is absolutely incredible. And uh, this is my third trip to South Africa. It's not near enough trips, not near, near as many as I would like it to be, but uh, this is one of the greatest nations I've ever been to. Any country, yeah, it's unreal. Any country that considers chicken a vegetable, that's an incredible nation. You guys are remarkable. And that your word for thank you is donkey? I can literally call my friends a donkey and I'm being polite. This is it's absolutely amazing. And I just want to say, in even the last uh, three or four days since being here, and then tracking so closely with Gabriel and this team, this YWAM Fire and Fragrance team that's been here for the last several years, I am amazed at the hunger for God in this place. And what I feel even coming in as we were flying in and we spent the last three or four days with a whole bunch of on-fire young people, many of them, most of them from South Africa, most of them even from this region, is I truly believe that South Africa is on the doorstep of a youth movement, a true youth awakening. And I've had the privilege of going to lots of nations around the world, and one of the most amazing places that I have truly seen a youth movement erupt has been Brazil. And Brazil's gone in the last 30 or 40 years from 10 to 15 million evangelical believers to 70 million. And the majority of those millions are young people that have caught on fire for Jesus, are carrying a spirit of revival, have truly experienced a spiritual awakening, and are now dreaming about transformation both in their nation and the nations of the earth. And I can honestly say, aside from Brazil, there's not another place in the world that I feel the similar feeling as I do here in South Africa. There's a groundswell that's happening here meeting with some of the pastors and leaders earlier this uh, afternoon, and tomorrow we'll be with more pastors and leaders. So much humility, so much hunger, and such a desire to see Jesus glorified. And this is the recipe for a move of God. Even that tonight we would gather on this field with the hundreds that are here to simply exalt Jesus, this is a recipe for a move of God. And when I'm interacting with the 18, 19, 20-year-olds here in South Africa, there is an innate hunger and a zeal for God that I believe is the beginnings of something that is going to touch this whole nation. And out of South Africa, truly a move of God that would touch every nation in Africa, but every nation in the world would be blessed by the fire of God. God that's poured out in this place. And so I feel so honored, privileged to spend this evening with you tomorrow night and to contend together for God's purposes. And the theme of this gathering is out of Isaiah chapter 6. And it's this exaltation or this picture of the exalted Lord. And it says in the beginning of Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, the train of his robe filled the temple, and then it goes on to describe this incredible scene that Isaiah sees when he sees the exalted Lord. Well, one of the things I don't think we always realize when we read this passage 
is that Isaiah was seeing an exalted Lord in the midst of a natural crisis. The year King Uzziah died was the year of crisis for the nation of Israel. You could imagine in a kingdom, when a king dies and it's the transition of power, it's far different than even in a democratic nation where there's a change of the head of state. When a king dies, everything changes. The social economic fears, the unrest, the division, the, the fear of the future, the fear of enemies, the fear of what could happen to your own kingdom, the division in the nation, the wrestle for power, all of that's going on. And in the year King Uzziah died, Israel was in crisis. But praise God that Isaiah saw God bigger than his crisis. He saw God bigger than a pandemic. He saw God bigger than economic fears. He saw God bigger than division. He saw God bigger than the fears of the future. He saw the Lord high and lifted up in a crisis hour in Israel's history. And I think in this hour, God is raising up Isaiah's. Those who have eyes to see a God who is bigger than their circumstances, bigger than their difficulties, bigger than the headlines, bigger than political division, bigger than racial division, bigger than economic fears of the future, bigger than wars. There is a God that is exalted above it all, and the Lord is raising up a generation that could see the Lord high and lifted up no matter their circumstances. That's why we're gathering. That's what these two days are about. And Isaiah's response, when he sees the Lord high and lifted up, is one of total abandonment, total surrender, total repentance, and total obedience. And in this hour, again, the Lord is looking for, to raise up his church, to raise up a generation, and to raise up believers who not only have eyes to see, but have a heart to respond. And when we get a vision of a God that is high and exalted, that we would respond in total abandonment, total surrender, total repentance, and total obedience. It would be the heart of God. That wholehearted Christianity would be the only Christianity on the earth. That there would not be another version of Christianity where it is okay in one moment to say that we see an exalted Savior and then live differently the next moment. To say that he's high above and majestic and mighty and holy and then live like he is unholy. To live like he is a small God. To live in fear. To live in introspection. To live in small-mindedness. He is looking for a people whose life will reflect an exalted vision of what he's really like. And I think he's finding that kind of people tonight. I think that's who's on this field tonight. And I think that's who God is raising up across this nation to touch the nations of the earth. And when I think of wholeheartedness, this incredible response of Isaiah when he sees the Lord high and lifted up in the midst of his crisis, I think of David in the Bible. And I'd like to spend some time tonight talking about the heart of David and the life of David as a prototype to what I think God is doing in this hour and doing in our hearts in this field tonight. It says in Acts chapter 13, one of the greatest things that God, I think, ever testifies over a human in the scriptures. It says in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, that after removing Saul, he made David their king. And it says that God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. I want you to think for a moment how powerful it is when God testifies over our lives. 
This is far greater than the testimony of a human. This is far greater than the affirmation or the praise of other humans, of other people. This is God testifying over the true motivation that drove David. And when God looked into the heart of David, he testified to the world around and said, I have found a man who is after my own heart. I have found a man that is not living for the praise of others. I have found a man that is not living for his own glory. I have found a man that is not living for his own reputation, his own position, his own title, or his own impact. I have found a man whose heart is bent towards me and who will do anything that I ask him to do. And this to me is the definition of wholeheartedness. And this to me is why Jesus died on a cross, overcame death, resurrected, ascended to heaven and poured out his spirit. It's not so that we would just eke our way through life, not so that we would pray a prayer and raise our hand and, and, and then you know, join a group of other believers, but he died that our hearts would be transformed, that we would be wholehearted, and that he could testify over our lives, I have found a man, I have found a woman who is after my heart, and they will do anything that I ask them. This is the type of person that God is raising up. And to look a little bit further back into the life of David, let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 13. And I want to tell a little bit of the story of David's life to just bring it to life for us tonight and to pull out what did it mean that David was a man after God's own heart? What would it look like to be a people that are after God's own heart? What would it look like if God were to raise up a generation of 15-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 20 years old, that even now would dedicate the rest of their lives to wholeheartedness? What would it look like to see a multi-generational move of God where 70-year-olds are more on fire than when they were 30 years old? Where the longer we walk with him, the greater the zeal becomes in our hearts. That the longer we walk with him, the more our love for purity and holiness. That the more we behold him, the more we become like him. And that was the intention and the dream of the father in sending his son. And David, again, is one in the scriptures that embodies this. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul has been the first king in Israel. And it's not very long before Saul sins, the sin of presumption, and he sacrifices to God in a way that he shouldn't have. He moved in presumption. He moved in fear. He moved in insecurity. And because of it, Samuel, at the time, is the greatest leader in Israel. And Samuel, who's anointed Saul, is now rebuking Saul. And it says in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, it says, but now your kingdom will not endure. This is speaking of Saul because of his sin of presumption. It says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and he's appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's commands. And I want you to think for a moment what it was like for Samuel, who had loved Saul, and we see that in the rest of these passages, had deep love for Saul. He had anointed him king. He knew that he was God's anointed. God had commanded him to anoint Saul king. But now Saul's heart has drifted away from God. He's moved into the fear of man. He's moved into self-reliance and self-strength. And because of it, now the Lord is removing himself from Saul, and he's removing the kingdom from Saul. And here's Samuel now rebuking him, and he has no idea what plan B is. God's not spoken to him yet who the next king is going to be. But he's given him a clue. 
And in this moment, Samuel prophesies the clue over who the next king of Israel will be. And as he says to Saul, the Lord is removing the kingdom from you, he says this, but he has found a man after his own heart, and he will be the next king of Israel. But Samuel's never even met David yet. Samuel has no idea who he's talking about. Samuel has no idea who this next king will be. And as these chapters go on, you have the story of Jonathan attacking the Philistines. And then you have the rout of the Philistines. But then you get to the final rejection in chapter 15, where Saul is fully rejected as king. And now Samuel, it says he's sad. He's actually mourning over it. In chapter 16, verse 1, the Lord says to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen him and one of his son, I've chosen one of his sons to be king of Israel. So now Samuel is getting another clue that this man after God's own heart, Saul's been fully rejected. And now he gives him his next clue. He's one of the sons of Jesse. Go to Jesse, go to his hometown, and I will show you who the next king of Israel is. And you need to know, and you probably do, that Samuel is the most powerful man in Israel at this time. He's the last of the judges, he's a prophet, and he's a priest. He is the most powerful leader politically, but he's also the spiritual leader of the nation, and he is the mouthpiece of God. There is not another man in Israel with more power. There is not another man in Israel more respected than Samuel. And so in chapter 16, Samuel obeys the Lord, and he begins, he, he, God gives him a plan of where to go and what to say. And he makes his way to Bethlehem. And in verse 4, it says, Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town, they trembled when they met him. And they asked, do you come in peace? When Samuel shows up in a town, the town trembles. That's the authority and the power that this man walks in. And the elders of the town sort of look on and go, is this good news or bad news? Why have you come to our town? Do you mean peace? And Samuel reassures them and he says, yes, I have I've come in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves. Come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and he invited them to the sacrifice. And I want to say that this is one of the most important days in Bethlehem's history. This is one of the greatest moments of anyone who's alive in Bethlehem to go, Samuel has come to our town. We weren't sure if it was good news or bad news, but he's come to sacrifice. And then can you imagine for Jesse, when, the Lord sing, when Samuel singles out Jesse and says, call your whole family, we are going to sacrifice together. This is the greatest moment in Jesse's life. This is the greatest moment in his family's life. The judge, prophet, priest has come to town. He has singled out your family, and he is about to bring the word of the Lord. This is a significant moment for the whole city, and it's a significant moment for the life of Jesse. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before me. He looks at Eliab from the outer appearance. He's the oldest son, and he goes, my gosh, this guy looks like a king. I don't even know what that means, but he apparently was jacked. He was tall. He didn't look like me, that's for sure. He looked a lot more like Gabriel, that's for sure. And Samuel looks at this guy and looks at his strength, looks at his charisma, looks at the attention that he commands, looks at his height. I don't know what he saw, 
But he looks at Eliab and he goes, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And remember for Samuel, Samuel is a direct channel of the word of the Lord. He hears the word of the Lord. In fact, he doesn't really miss the word of the Lord. He's this tremendous prophet in Israel. But in this moment, the Lord speaks to Samuel. And it's as if he takes him out back and says, Samuel, I still have much to teach you. He says, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel gets his third clue. First, he knows it's a man after God's own heart. Second, he knows it's one of Jesse's sons. And third, now, the Lord makes it clear, I am not looking for someone who might look like they play the part. I'm not looking for someone with a certain personality. I'm not looking for someone with a certain charisma or position or title or background. He goes, I am looking at the heart. You get caught up on all the outside stuff, but I look at the heart to find the people that I I move through. Then Jesse calls Abinadab, the second son, and can you imagine how Eliab felt when he was passed over? This is now not a good family moment. The oldest son walks in front of Samuel, and he's like, this is my moment. Finally, I'm going to get recognition. Finally, I'm going to get the position and the title I deserve, and Samuel's like, dang, this guy deserves it. He's huge. He's tall. He commands your attention. The Lord rebukes him, and Samuel has to say, Eliab, sorry, it's not you. Awkward. Super awkward moment. Then Eliab is, I don't know, standing there on the side, sitting down, a little bit angry. And the second son begins to pass in front of him, Abinadab. And he passes in front. Can you imagine Abinadab? He's like, this is my lucky day. Always knew it wasn't my older brother. Always knew. He's a donkey. (laughs) Always knew that it was not him that would lead our family or the nation. This is my hour. And Abinadab passes in front of Samuel, and it says, the Lord has not chosen this one either. He says it out loud. How painful. In this moment, now Abinadab, all of a sudden, think it's in him. And Samuel's like, sorry, the Lord says it's not you either. Now he's angry. He's over there with Eliab, and they're both mad. The next one, Jesse then had Shema pass, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Now three angry sons, and the fourth son is like, yes. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. Can you imagine the anger of these seven brothers? How in the world? Samuel's confused. Because he has three clues, a man after God's own heart, the son of Jesse, and now not the outward appearance, but the Lord's looking in the heart. So Jesse has passed all of his sons in front of Samuel, and Samuel's confused because he knows that the Lord said it'd be one of the sons of Jesse. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Jesse's response, there is still the youngest, Jesse answered, He's tending the sheep. And I want you to think about the pain of this statement. It's the most important moment in your city's history. It's certainly in your lifetime. It's the most important moment in your family's lifetime. The prophet, priest, judge has singled your family out. And you know something incredible is about to happen. 
Jesse is stunned, goes, oh my gosh, my family, how did we deserve this? He gathers his sons and he doesn't even think to invite David. Seven sons pass before Samuel and David remains uninvited. Most important moment in their family history, the only son who's not there. Samuel's confused, who is it? Jesse says, they're still the youngest. He's tending the sheep. Samuel says this, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. Imagine the seven brothers now. Are you kidding me? David, the runt, the sheep herder? We didn't even invite him. He wasn't even in our minds. He wasn't even on the roster. You're kidding me. We're going to have to stand until David comes? And can you imagine how angry they were? No wonder they're so angry, you know, when David shows up on the battlefield with Goliath and his brothers are mocking him, saying, why are you here? What are you even doing? Can you imagine the resentment that may have been built up at this moment in the family? So they sent for him, and they had him brought in. And I want to suggest that this is one of the most remarkable things about David, a man after God's own heart, is it says here about him, the description of him when he shows up to Samuel. And remember, most significant moment in your family's history, and you are uninvited, rejected, forgotten. David shows up here, rejected, forgotten, and uninvited. And the description of him is he was glowing with health. He was glowing with health. He had found something in the back hills of Bethlehem that not even his family could give him. He had found something with his little harp on a starry night, singing to his heavenly father that not even his earthly father could give him or take away from him. And David shows up rejected, uninvited, forgotten, and yet he is glowing with health. He had a fine appearance and handsome features, and the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. And I want you to think about this moment. Samuel and David continued on in some form of relationship, and I wonder, I'm just guessing, was there ever a moment, ever a conversation between David and Samuel where he sat down and David went, Samuel, what happened? Like, first of all, why my family? Why Bethlehem? And Samuel's like, it was the word of the Lord. I came in obedience. And then, and then David goes, yeah, but, but then why not Eliab? He's huge. He's the oldest in the family. Why not him? And I would imagine, did Samuel blush a little bit going, yeah, I thought it was him too. He is huge. He'd make a great king. He goes, but David, never, ever forget this. The Lord took me aside, and he said that man looks at the outside, but that God looks at the heart. And David, for the rest of your days, know that you weren't chosen because of your personality. You weren't chosen because of your charisma. You weren't chosen because of your skills on the harp or your skills with the sheep. You were chosen because your heart was bent towards God at a young age. You were chosen because the Lord found a kid on the back hills of Bethlehem, seemingly rejected by his family, but in love with his heavenly father. And David, never forget, this is why the Lord has chosen you. This is why you will be king in Israel. He goes on 
And I want to highlight one of the Psalms that David had written to further highlight and illustrate what does this man after God's own heart really look like? What was it that made God testify about him? And I just have to think that throughout David's rule, when you see these incredible moments where he chooses God over position or title or fame or glory, that it was that man after God's own heart, it was that boy on the back hills of Bethlehem still choosing God over a position, still choosing God over influence, still choosing God over his own reputation. And you see that again and again. He refuses to force himself to be king, even though he's anointed. He refuses to kill Saul, even though Saul has lost his mind and he's evil and he's operating against God. But David refuses. David is a man who is bent on loving God, bent on knowing God. Saul is content to lead Israel without the tabernacle in the presence. Without the Ark of the Covenant, Saul lives his entire 40 years as king, and the Ark never rests in Israel. The moment David becomes king, he goes, we're getting the presence of God back into the city. He goes, I didn't do this because I'm a qualified king. I'm doing this because God anointed me because he found me on the back hills worshiping even though my family had forgotten me. And I refuse to rule or to lead without the presence of God in the center of my life. And he goes to get the ark and he brings it in Jerusalem. And you know the story. He dances with foolishness, with extravagance as they bring the presence of God back into Israel. And his wife looks down at him and says, you have made a fool of yourself in front of all of the daughters of Israel. And he looks at her and he goes, you've not seen anything yet. He goes, I will be more undignified than this for my Lord. You don't know how much I really love him. I believe with all of my heart that God is shaking everything that can be shaken right now. He is shaking out of our hearts and out of our lives the desire for some position, the desire for some influence, the desire for some title, some recognition, some reputation. He is shaking it out of the church right now. He is shaking it out of our lives right now. And instead, he is raising up a people who would behold the Lord, who would see him high and lifted up. And with the revelation of the Lord fresh in our hearts and minds, who would lay it all down at his feet and go, God, it's all for you. It's all for your glory. You're all I want. My reputation is not my inheritance. My impact is not even my inheritance. You are my inheritance. And you are what I want. And you are what I long for. And this was the heart of David. Psalm 27. One of the most famous psalms that we love of David where he expresses his heart. And a lot of the commentaries actually think that David wrote Psalm 27 when Absalom pushed him out of his own kingdom. You know the story. His son Absalom rebels against him. And David made some mistakes as a father. David made plenty of mistakes in his life. But Absalom takes over his own palace, his own kingdom, and David doesn't fight him. David gets his his mighty men, those that were closest to him, and he leaves his kingdom. He leaves his palace. He leaves his power. He leaves it all. And he flees into the hills once again, back where it all started. And as he flees his own kingdom, they think that he looked back on Israel and he wrote Psalm 27. And when you think about it in that context, it's even more powerful. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
I may be running from my life and Absalom may be trying to kill me and my army that I used to lead and rule over now be, may be trying to seek my life and to kill me. But he says, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. And then he says one of the most remarkable statements in the entirety of Scripture. He looks back on Israel, looks back on Jerusalem, looks back on the power and the palace and everything that he used to have. And it's as if he says, let all people know for all of time, one thing I have asked from the Lord. And it's not my power back. It's not my kingdom back. It's not the loyalty of my people back. It's not my palace back. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I could gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and I could seek him in his temple. This one thing. I'm not asking for what everybody else would normally ask for back. I'm not asking for my position back. It's as if he says, God, this whole thing started on the back hills of Bethlehem. This whole thing started with a harp and a song in my heart. And Lord, all I'm asking for, the only thing, my one desire is to dwell in your house, to gaze upon your beauty and to seek you in your temple. This was the heart that was bent on God. This was the heart that God would testify, David, a man after my own heart. And one of the things I think that's so profound in this verse is when David declares that he would gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And I don't know if we were in David's circumstances how many of us would have used beauty to describe God in that moment. Fleeing for your life. Son has turned against you. Your own people, your own kingdom is turned against you. And what word does David use to describe God even in the midst of these circumstances? Beautiful. David is one of the first people in the entirety of the Bible to use the word beauty to describe God. And how ironic that someone that came from a potentially broken childhood seems somewhat rejected and forgotten by his family, that he's the one to use the word beauty to describe God. Some of you have written yourself off in your future because of your past. Some of you disqualified yourselves maybe for things that happened on this very field. And yet God wants to bring the revelation as you behold him that no matter your past, he is beautiful. No matter what has gone on in your life, he is beautiful. And imagine a generation that I hear some of the statistics over South Africa, and you hear about the fatherlessness, I feel it in my own nation in America, wouldn't it be like God to redeem a somewhat rejected generation to lead them into the greatest revelation of the beauty of God that has ever been had? Wouldn't it be like God to take a fatherless generation and give them a revelation of the beauty of the Father? This is what happened to David. When you read David's story, we all become qualified to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to set our lives on one thing, undistracted, affections wholeheartedly set on him and him alone. And I remember when I first read this and began to meditate on, gosh, what did David know about God that he called you beautiful? And I had this thought. If I had never read Psalm 27, would I have personally come to the conclusion on my own that God was beautiful? 
Or do I only know he's beautiful because David told me? In my own focus on one thing, in my own wholeheartedness for Jesus, in my own secret place relationship in the word and in prayer, despite my own circumstances, would I have discovered that God was beautiful if David hadn't told me he was beautiful? And I think God wants to lead a generation into the revelation of his beauty. That as we exalt him, as we see him, as we gaze upon him, that what becomes real to us is there is none more beautiful. There is none more, authentic, more amazing. There is none more majestic. There is none more incredible than God. And this was David, the man after God's own heart. I want to jump to this last story tonight as we wrap up. In Luke chapter 10, another story of one thing, one devotion. And we've probably heard this and heard it taught many times. It's the story of Mary and Martha. And I grew up hearing this story and just constantly feeling like a Martha and constantly feeling condemned because I actually love to do things for God. I love to work for God. And I would hear this passage and be like, dang it, I guess I'm just a Martha because I just want to do stuff for him all the time. Yes, I love him and I love gazing upon his beauty. That was there too. But there's something inside of me and many of us in here that we just want to do things for him as well. I've been married for 21 years to one of the most amazing and beautiful people on the entire planet. And one of the things and expressions of love for this incredible woman is I want to do things for her. I want to serve her. It's an overflow of love. But so many times I heard this taught and preached and I'm like, dang it, I'm just a Martha. I'm never going to make it. And in this story, just to read it, it says Jesus and his disciples were on their way. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and you are upset about many things. But few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So I began to study this in years after I'd heard it taught so many times. And to dive in a little bit more to the story, I realized that I wasn't just doomed to be a Martha my whole life. That the issue was not that Martha wanted to serve. Someone needed to make a meal that day. If everyone is going to eat, someone needed to cook. The issue was not that Martha was cooking. The issue is in verse 40 that Martha was distracted by her serving. And this word distracted literally can mean this. It can mean that your body is in the room, but emotionally you're outside the room. And many of us have been in the room, but disconnected from the heart of God. Many of us have been in the chair on Sunday morning, physically there, but our emotions disconnected from him. Many of us have gone through the religious motions. We've, we've played the part. We've done the deal. We've checked the boxes. We authentically are, you know, we love God. It's real. We really do. But we have grown weary, and because of it, we have emotionally disconnected from the heart of God. And this was Martha. Her issue was not serving. Her issue was that her serving had distracted her in the body. In, in the room, in her body, outside the room, in her emotions, and in her mind. 
And when she comes to Jesus, she says, Lord, don't you care? And Jesus looks straight at her heart. And he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and you are upset about many things. He doesn't address her serving. You shouldn't have been cooking, Martha. You missed it. You shouldn't have been making food. Mary nailed it. She wasn't serving or cooking. No, he looks straight at her heart. And he says, issue, the issue, Martha, is that you are worried and you are upset. You are full of anxiety. You have disconnected your heart from me. You might be in the room and in a, in a typical house in Mary and Martha's day, there is no way that no matter what room she was in in that house, she could hear Jesus. She could hear his teaching. She could hear what he was saying. It wasn't that Mary was just sitting closer and that that's what she got commended for. Martha could hear him, but couldn't hear him. She could physically hear, but she didn't have eyes to hear. She probably could have even physically seen him, but she didn't have eyes to see him. She had not beheld the Lord. Like Isaiah, like David, like Mary. And he looks at her heart and he says, you have been worried and you have been upset about many things. And I have to wonder if Jesus is referencing Psalm 27, which he would have had memorized like any young Jewish man of his time. He says, but few things are needed, and then he changes it, or indeed, only one. The one thing that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon his beauty, to seek him in his temple. And then he says, Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. And Mary's better was not that just she just sat at his feet and never did anything for him. We have plenty of biblical commands in the rest of Scripture that we're to walk in great sacrifice and great obedience, and that we're to take the gospel all over the earth. The issue wasn't that Martha was cooking and Mary was sitting. The issue was that Martha was disconnected from his heart, and Mary was connected with a passion for one thing, to dwell with you, Jesus, to gaze upon your beauty, to see you high and lifted up, and to serve you all the days of my life. Mary had tapped into wholeheartedness. Martha was a believer, but she was distracted, she was anxious, and she was worried. When a people, when the church, when a generation gets a hold of the one thing, then we are on the doorstep of spiritual awakening. When God begins to look out at a nation, a people, a region, a city, a church, and he begins to testify over them, these are people who are after my own heart. These are people that are connected with their affections and their love to me. These are a people who have beheld me in my glory and in my exalted state, and they have seen me bigger than their circumstances, bigger than their difficulties, bigger than their problems. This to me is the key to the youth awakening that's coming to South Africa. It's 19-year-olds whose affections are for him and him alone, who love holiness and purity 
who have given up compromise and run away from the world. And not because someone twisted their arm, not because someone preached loud enough and shouted at them, but because they beheld the beauty of the Lord and he is all they want anymore. This is the youth movement. It's the catalyst. It's the spark. And it's the spark to a multi-generational move of God that no matter whether we've been walking with him for a year or for 30 years, that our hearts are burning for him because we have beheld his beauty and nothing else deserves our affection but him and him alone. And I believe this is happening, sweeping South Africa, and I believe it's just the beginning. And that this field is a first of sorts. It's a city of firsts, I'm told. Let tonight be a night of firsts. We're in an open field in an open sky with a sound system that people can hear all around is that we be found to be a people who desire and long for one thing above everything else in life to dwell with him, to gaze upon his beauty, and the world would look on and go, we've never seen anything like this. A church that is reflecting his beauty and his glory. A people that are undone, that are ravished in their love for him. A people that are extravagant in their devotion, and the world will look on, and the sound of extravagance will spread across South Africa. Not because we finally got the right preacher. Not because we finally wrote the right worship song. But because the everyday believer wakes up in the morning, beholds the beauty of the Lord. Lives with affection, undistracted, undefiled, uncompromising gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. And I feel tonight, there's so many tonight that God wants to reconnect your emotions and your heart and your mind and your love to Him and Him alone. That there are many here tonight where God wants to obliterate compromise. And again, it won't come because we were strong-armed. It won't come because of shame and condemnation. It won't come because we preached loud enough, but where we will break up with compromise because we beheld something more beautiful than our compromise something greater than the world has to offer something like declared at the end of the song of Solomon where the bride says to the bridegroom if one were to offer me all the wealth of the world that I would simmer down in this love for you I would be ashamed there's coming a time I believe across the earth and I think we're in it now where when the wealth of the world would be offered to us and fill in the blank there, influence, power, wealth, impact, positions, titles, when the world comes to us and offers us and goes, we'll give you everything. The enemy comes, the world comes, we'll give you everything. You can have whatever you want, the most power that you could have, the most influence that you could possibly have. And here's all I'm asking is that you would simmer down a little bit in your love. I'm not even asking that you'd renounce your faith. You see, the enemy, when he realizes we're not gonna renounce our faith, he changes his strategy. I don't think the danger for any of us here tonight is that we would like wake up tomorrow and decide to be a Buddhist. I just don't think that's the temptation. Like worship a statue and you're like, dang, that's appealing, I'm really considering it. I, I just don't think that's the distraction. That's not the enemy's tactic in the room right now or on the field. It's like tomorrow you'd wake up and be like, Hinduism looks amazing. So the enemy goes, okay, that's fine. I get it. You're not going to renounce Christianity. Then I'll change my plan. You can be a Christian. Just be a safe one. 
You can be a Christian, just be one whose heart is not connected to me. Call yourself a Christian, that's fine. You don't need to become a Hindu and renounce your Christianity. Just disconnect your heart from God. And the enemy comes tempting, going, I will give you the wealth of the world. And I'm not asking you to renounce Christianity. All I'm asking is that you would simmer down your love. It's a little too hot. You're a little too zealous. You're a little too sold out. And in that moment, the bride in that situation, in that scenario, she looks at the temptation of the world and she goes, are you kidding me? You clearly don't know what's in my heart. Are you joking right now? This is embarrassing. You think that I would take a career with wealth and prestige. You think that I would take influence you think that I would take glory from others and a great reputation in the eyes of the world just to simmer down in my love? You don't know what's in my heart. I am embarrassed that you would offer it. As if someone had walked up to you in your million dollar home and they walked up in all seriousness, they pulled out like, you know, change. All they have is change, few dollars. And they go, hey, I will give this to you for your house. And you look at them and go, is this a joke? And that is the response of a people who have set their hearts on one thing, who have gazed upon the beauty of the Lord, who have beheld him in his glory, who have seen him in his exalted state, is when the world comes running, we go, are you kidding me? You think that I will settle for pornography when I have seen the beauty of God? You think I will mess around in a dating relationship when I have seen the beauty of God? You think I'm gonna be tempted into compromise when I have seen the exalted Lord in the midst of my broken past, in my own rejection, in my own being forgotten by the world? I have found God and you think I'm gonna settle for these compromises when I have seen his beauty? I am ashamed, ashamed. And this is the fire that God is putting in the heart of his church again.